0: Thank you, Father. Father, this day we acknowledge that the welcome of the Spirit to gather in the name of Jesus Christ has been opened through the torn flesh of Jesus Christ, our Savior, because our sins were atoned for on His suffering and death on Calvary. Because we are hid in Him, that is, in Him, our transgression against Your holy law was atoned for. Therefore, We have standing in Your presence. We have fellowship and reconciliation through the blood of Christ to gather in Your holy name. Lord, we, Your people, seek to honor You and acknowledge these truths that are the the foundation of our relationship with You and our fellowship with one another. As we turn to Your Scriptures, where these things are expounded and explained and applied by Your anointed servants of old, by the God-breathed power of the Holy Spirit, I pray that we would understand them according to their original intent and that you would grant us grace to walk in the way that you have ordained and laid out in your scripture through your law applied to those whose hearts have been transformed who now with changing desires and and ever increasing sanctification desire to walk in a way that pleases you. Lord, as we consider the great epistle of Jude and these closing words today, I pray that that doxology these worshipful expressions will not just be something we sing once a week, but would be a heart that we live out in the rest of our life, that we might give glory to you every moment of each day, to the praise of your great name. We thank you for this opportunity. Open our ears to hear, open our eyes to see, and Lord, strengthen and straighten our footsteps to follow you where you uh, have, where you have ordained according to your scriptures that we might better serve you in the cause of your kingdom. Finally, this morning, if there are any lost in the hearing of the proclamation of your scripture today, we pray that you would so convict them that they would be cut to the heart, that they would turn from their sins, they would repent, and they would accept the sacrifice of Jesus Christ as sufficient payment for every way that they have transgressed your holy law. We thank you for the body and blood of our Savior, the reason for which we gather, the cost of our salvation, and the great theme of this meal we have today and the great promise of all the Scriptures fulfilled in His redemptive work. In His name we pray. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. What a great privilege, and how glad ought we to be, to come to the house of the Lord, to open the Scriptures, and to behold the truth that is ours in Christ Jesus, Today we consider the last two verses in the book of Jude and the second of three sermons as far as I've laid them out to consider this great doxology, which is a worshipful song or expression in closing. For Jude, it's just two verses, but there's so much here by way of inspiration behind and underneath and in, implied in the words of Jude that it seems appropriate to take some time to consider the sources that moved Jude to express this glorious worship to the Lord and then pray that those things, those motivations, would also be deep in our hearts and would move us to praise accordingly as well. Today, the title of our message is The Nature of God. Secondly, after the first of the inspirations leading Jude to pen these words, the first being the fullness of salvation, We consider the nature of God and how this motivated Jude's worship. The aim of this morning's sermon is to proclaim the glories of God revealed in this epistle. The glories of God revealed in Jude. As you're able, out of reverence for God's word, would you stand today and let us consider these scriptures. As you're able, standing in the presence of the Lord, we hear His holy word proclaimed in Jude 24 and 25. Listen now. To Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, and now, and forever. Amen. This is the Word of God. You may be seated. Jude's letter provides a model for godly worship in the form of Confession, song, prayer, proclamation. These words we've just heard are suited for all of these. The confession of our faith. To him who is able to keep me from stumbling, he presents me in Jesus Christ, blameless before his presence, and so forth. In song, we often sing these words, and rightly so. Their poetic form gives us the sense that this was probably a song sung by the early church thus when we lift up musical expressions of Jude 24 and 25. We're joining not just the confession, but the worshipful songs of old. 2,000 years, I'm certain the church in some way, shape, or form has sung these words. Proclamation. We declare that these things are true to a world that is dying, lost, and condemned for lack of assent to the majesty, dominion, glory, and authority of Jesus Christ. Prayer. As we pray according to these words, it forms the fra- or it forms the context of our requests and the assurance of answered prayer according to what God has established for certain. Verses 24 and 25 of Jude's epistle contain one of the most beloved doxologies of the church. Though brief in its expression, this, uh, it's this expression, this salutation or closing of a letter by means of praise, draws deeply from the wells of scriptural revelation, in its inspiration. In other words, Jude draws deeply from the rest of the testimony of Scripture and what the Spirit has sovereignly revealed to him as inspiration and source for this worship song, if you will. Jude is moved to magnify the Lord, as we've said, on account of perhaps three categories of things. Number one, the fullness of salvation. As we covered primarily in our last message, that is to say, all glory, majesty, dominion, and authority be to Him who keeps us from stumbling. Be to Him who presents us blameless before his presence, the presence of His glory. And be to Him who is our great joy. The fullness of salvation is a source of inspiration for Jude's great hymn. Secondly, and today we consider the nature of God. The nature of God is the only God. The nature of God is Savior. The nature of God is Lord. The nature of God and as Jesus Christ is Lord and God, and as such the second person of the Trinity. More on that as we explore this message. Thirdly, and for a future message, the attributions, attributes, worthy of God. That would be the glory, majesty, dominion, and authority that Jude ascribes to our Lord. These, I think, are worthy of a final message and perhaps an overview sermon to come as we bring our study to a close. Meanwhile, for today, we seek to appreciate the rich implications of God's revelation or self-disclosure or communicating to us who He is, especially as His uh, disclosure or His revelation relates to the work of redemption, salvation. Certainly Jude, I go on to say by way of application, certainly Jude would be greatly encouraged to hear that the recipients of his letter Those that read and take to heart his words found his doxology striking a chord in their own souls. If your soul, if your heart resonates with these words, that would be encouraging to Jude. Why? Because a church who appreciates the fullness of salvation and the holiness of God will be well equipped to discern and oppose anything or anyone, as we have said, who would seek to diminish or deny the glory, majesty, dominion, and authority of the only true God, who has condescended to us in Jesus Christ and his gospel. And with that, we remind ourselves of a purpose statement for the book of Jude. Jude writes to equip us to contend for the faith against the enemies of the church, that is, anyone who would diminish or deny these aspects, excuse me, attributions of the Lord, his glory, majesty, dominion, and authority, and so forth. Today, I'll give you a heading and a subheading, As we consider primarily today, the nature of God is an inspiration for Jude's expression of worship. Jude models true worship inspired by the nature of God, and here is the subheading. All glory, majesty, dominion, and authority be to three uh, uh, main points. To one, the only God. Two, to our Savior through Jesus Christ. And three, to our Lord Jesus Christ. Jude models true worship by giving this, or by writing this expression, and in so doing, ascribing glory, majesty, dominion, and authority to number one, the only God. Jude closes his book reminding us of one of the first great confessions of the people of God. From the very beginning of God's Word in written form, under Moses, uh, under the inspiration given to Moses, or Moses' administration, He was inspired to write the word of God. And this morning, our worship text came from Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, which in the Hebrew is often called the Shema, which is a testimony to the character of God that was to be memorized and was to be part of the people's conviction and confession. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one God. A radical statement of shining beacon of truth in a world of diverse and pagan notions of what the ultimate, what the divine, what the supernatural is, the explanation for how we got here, who do we bow to, who secures our future, where might we find food for tomorrow's meal. Questions like this have plagued man since the fall and since the fall, his mind has been blinded to the source and authority, to the majesty and glory, dominion and power of his creator and sovereign and Lord and in his blindness, he has stumbled in the dark reaching for every crude idea of supernatural hope that could give him a sense of security and footing. And in the olden days, just as it is today, this took all kinds of perverse and wild, absurd ideas and form among the people at the time. But there was a clear voice of revelatory assurance. There was a proclamation of majesty and truth. There was a foundational confession of what has always been the case. Hear, O Israel. That is, hear, O people of God. The Lord your God is not yourself, not your neighbors, not an expert class, a priest class we've talked about. In the case of Egypt, it's not these, all these uh, fanciful notions that the worshipers of Baal and Ashtoreth believe among your neighbors. No, the Lord your God is one God. He is the only God, Jude says, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior through Jesus Christ. Be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority. The testimony of God, the monotheistic God of all creation, all revelation, of all history of all the cosmos, the first cause, the explanation for all, the one who was and is and is to come, the one who has established his word forever, the word of, whom, of him which never changes, never withers, and never fails, the one who is the author and finisher of all, the one who has ordained all things before time g- began. Who is this? This is the Lord of heavens and earth, the Lord of you, Created in His image, the Lord of all creation, who sovereignly directs by His superintending power the course of every microscopic molecule, atom, electron, proton, and the entire cosmos, the Lord your God is but one God revealed in Scripture, the foundation of the confession of the people of God from the very beginning. Hear, O people of God, hear, O Israel, the only God, your Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, to him alone is deserving the expressions of worship and praise, ascribing to him glory, majesty, dominion, and authority. Jude confirms this according to decisive and divine consequences. In other other words, what are some ways that Jude emphasizes the exclusivity, which is another way of saying in adjective form the onlyness, if you will, of God? Well, the testimony of history in Scripture tells us that God is exclusive. That is to say, He is ultimate, He is universal, He is singular, He is the only God. In that, He presides over all other lesser authorities or competitors or usurpers to His authority and His throne. So Jude has covered this in some length in verses 4-7. through And here we might catalog the exclusivity of God as illustrated by the following. The Lord is judge, presiding over these things. Number one, wolves in the church. Number two, world empires. Number three, covenant rebels. Number four, reprobate angels. And number five, depraved societies. This only God, this one true God, this sovereign and authoritative Lord of all that Jude exalts at the close of his book, he has given us a record and a chronicle of as exclusivity in earlier verses. Number four, for instance, for certain people, he says, have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny what? Our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. So wolves in the church, of false teachers, if you will, enemies, the people of God, as we have said, by implication and application, those who would seek to diminish or deny the glory, majesty, authority, and dominion of Jesus Christ. Well, God is judge over these. Jesus has identified those who would be enemies that would infiltrate his church as wolves. He uses that analogy from Matthew 7:15 and around those verses. Here he uses the metaphor, wolves in sheep's clothing sheep's clothing, that's what they look on the outside. Oh, they're one of us, they're sheep, but on closer analysis and with discernment by what they proclaim, where they stand, he teaches us, Jesus does, to judge their fruit. We see as we look more closely, according to these means, stiff hairs, dark ones sticking out from between this thinly veiled disguise. Yes, there's truly a wolf underneath this clothing. The only God has declared war on the wolves in his church. He has thoroughly equipped his church to stand for righteousness, declaring his onlyness, his exclusivity, and in so doing, to discern the enemies of the faith, to call them out, and to make sure that his dominion is asserted over them. Are there wolves today? There certainly are. You know, I was thinking what might be a couple examples I could illustrate this point with, and I thought, well, wasn't Andy Stanley, and so-called evangelical leader with one of those big multi-campus megachurches, Doing something along the lines of homosexuality or something. So I did a quick uh, web search, and sure enough, there's an unconditional quote unquote conference being held and sponsored by his church. And he has made certain moves and things that he's said and doctrines that he's espoused in recent days to do what he's to uh, emphasize or to establish what he says is a decoupling between the Old Testament and the New. One thing you'll notice in the preaching from this pulpit is we do not do that. We do not say that the Old Testament is somehow lesser or different understanding or separate from the Word of God as a whole. No, we seek to understand all of the Word of God in its context and in its continuity, but not so there with everyone. There are wolves in the church who would like to draw differences between what they see as a different aspect of God or a different understanding of God in the Old Testament versus the New. And they do this largely motivated not to worship the only God revealed in Scripture upon the realization of their sins atoned for and their overwhelming thankfulness and joy that God in His holiness through Jesus Christ has made them presentable before Him those kind of things that motivated Jude to write, but no, instead, the pressures of modern-day culture to agree, to affirm, and to quote-unquote love according to the terms of the unbeliever, those who identify for instance, with the LGBTQ, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, ad nauseum, self-definition, and sexual identity crowd of a whole movement that seeks to throw off the chains of what God has ordered in creation. This morning in class, we were studying what biblical masculinity is for the older kids. God has established what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman. He has done so on the basis of His created power, dominion, and authority and establishing us according to His purpose in the first place. In the beginning, God created them, man and woman. Therefore, a man shall leave his spouse and cling to his wife and so forth. Well, there's a big movement in the church today or a growing one in some ways where wolves are seeking to blur the lines between man and woman, blur the lines on issues of what a godly marriage looks like. And Jude has given us a book. Jude has given us, although short in word count, a sufficient weapon to face these kinds of things. Anyone who would deny our master and Lord Jesus Christ is an enemy of his. They are ungodly people. They're motivated not by the worship of the one true God, exclusive and unchanging in his nature and character, the same yesterday and today and forever, but no, they want to modify their understanding of him and they want to deceive the church along these lines to pervert the grace of God into sensuality. And when they do so, they deny our only master, our Lord and Jesus Christ. They deny the exclusivity of the Lord revealed in Jesus. This is one example. Yesterday I had an encouraging time, or was it Friday, meeting with a pastor, a fellow pastor, as I see it in the kingdom of God, that actually worships with his congregation right across the road. He's a Lutheran pastor. Yes, a confessional Lutheran. I trust his brother is a, a, a true believer. He has, not grown, he has not allowed himself nor the communion in which he serves to go down the apostate road of some of the mainline denominations like the other church in town, the ELCA church, Evangelical Lutheran Church of America. I asked him this question. I said, is the ELCA a lost cause? He said, absolutely. It was a lost cause 30 plus years ago or whatever he said. And He said, and the reason is, is they left the authority of Scripture. I knew I was talking to a brother when I heard this. I knew I wasn't talking to a wolf. However, I was involved with the service years ago at that very church. And I'm telling you, a wolf preached a message for that funeral that I was involved with, he told us that life was absurd and he didn't cite the scriptures to make his point, but a existential philosopher, Albert Camus. And then he tried to save people's hopes in light light of what what we consider this untimely passing of a loved and prominent individual by saying, but there is the love of God. He tried to smuggle in a little bit of hope through the back door of absurdity all the while denying the authority of the scriptures that teach otherwise and giving people a thin, poisonous gruel to cling to and the loss of a loved one. Why? Because he was more sensitive to a culture whose perverse ideals have been shaped by their sinfulness rather than proclaiming the truth, the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. You know, death is the greatest enemy, and stepping into death is something that we cannot do without Jesus Christ cloaking us with his blood and his righteousness in order to spare us the judgment we deserve. And what better time to make that point that at a funeral where the reality of the uh, judgment or the wages of sin could not be clearer, at least in our experience. Someone has died reminding reminding us we must answer to him. The risk of laboring too much at this point, suffice it to say, that Jude is inspired to glorify the one and only God. And in glorifying and encouraging the church to value and to worship God as the same yesterday, today, and forever, exclusive in His authority, dominion, and power, He equips us to discern and to reject and to call out the wolves in the church. Secondly, and more uh, briefly, world empires. I want you, he says in verse 5, Now I want to remind you, Although you once fully knew it that Jesus who saved a people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe. We've covered this at length. But what did it take to save the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt? Well, it took the deposing of a pagan pantheon. All the false gods that were extolled and venerated and worshipped in Egypt, they were defeated by the ten plagues that condemned every one of them as a false idol and rose up through this wondrous display of his authority and judgment, Yahweh, as a testimony to all the pagan lands who's really in charge. What else did it take? It took the dividing of the land and the sea at uh, the great Red Sea passing. So just like God exercised his authority and at the word of his power, the seas and the land were, the, were divided at creation. So a reminder of his power to do so, the seas and land were divided at the Red Sea. If you believe it, it is impossible for that act to happen, what are you, a wolf? You deny that God created this world in the first place. You see, man is motivated to deny the supernatural activity of God in history. Why? Because he's taken issue with his creator in the first place. If we believe that it was some, you know, myth or idea or a false notion or fantasy that the sea was open and the people crossed, well, then perhaps it gives us permission to believe that creation in the first place was a myth or fantasy, and now we have moral permission to live as we so choose in our sinfulness, rather than bow to the exclusive and only God who deposes the pagan pantheon of false gods, divides the land and sea at the Red Sea and at creation, and in the same event, destroys Pharaoh's armies. The only God presides over wolves in the church, world empires, covenant rebels. It says that afterward, he destroyed those who did not believe. This is a sobering text indeed. The faithless, who are those who did not believe, who were destroyed in the wilderness, We remember there was a testing time, 40 years. Will the people cling to the word of God or will they betray faith in something else? Well, this test proved to illuminate many hearts, did it not? The faithless who betrayed their wickedness of heart, they blasphemed the providence of God. And in so doing, when they refused to follow Moses, God's anointed leader, they refused to follow God's timetable, despising their time in the wilderness. They refused to believe that he would provide for their needs or that he had stored up for them a bounty in the promised land. And instead, they wanted to retrace their steps to backslide and to uh, renounce their loyalty to the Lord returned to Egypt as they betrayed this heart of wickedness. They were renouncing their commitment to the Lord's will and to his word. Numbers 14, 27 through 34 records in some of these passages the wickedness of the people revealed in the hardship that they faced. Hebrews 3.16-4.2, through 4, 2, another passage to look at on your own time, gives us a warning. It expounds the lessons that we are to learn that God is sovereign over covenant rebels. Unbelief is evident at times in disobedience, revealing a rebellious heart. And if this rebellious heart is not repented of, and if it betrays in us a position that denies the word and will of God, then ultimately this heart will deny us salvation's rest. However, As we turn to the Lord and remember his word in covenant, which does not change, hold ourselves accountable to it, repair to the standard of his word, then we're living in submission to the one true God that Jude extols at the end of his book. We recognize him as the Lord, the judge, presiding over wolves in the church, world empires, covenant rebels, even reprobate angels. Verse 6, the angels who did not stay within their position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains, Under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Well, that's an interesting passage, but I'm telling you it's relevant for our time as well. This verse illustrates to us that God's sovereign authority extends to all the cosmos, all the created realm, whether it's the spiritual or the physical, the Lord reigns and rules. This is evident in His executing eternal judgment, not just on human beings, not just over the created material world but also over angels, both angelic creatures, angels and demons, and human beings themselves, and all the the world, all the cosmos, is under the sovereign control of our Lord and subject to his authority. This is relevant, by the way, in light of renewed supernatural curiosity in our day. So there's a growing kind of desire to experience things, the immaterial world, uh, what speaks to this? Well, popularity of aliens, extraterrestrials, ghosts, and the paranormal. We're entering into Halloween season, and a lot of movies, you know, that explore, you know, kind of the unexplainable and frightening aspects of a poorly understood immaterial realm and uh, demons and wickedness of that sort. You know, uh, magic and and so forth. Uh, hallucinogenic experiences are increasingly sought and more and more popular. Uh, they are seen to enlighten the mind in some way or open us up to answers we may not be able to experience just through our ordinary sensory data that we gather on a day-to-day basis or a growing desire to explore all these immaterial realities. This speaks to a people who could be easily deceived and led away. But to these people, Jude says, that angels who do not stay within their position of authority, he has kept under eternal chains of gloomy darkness. In other words, instructing us that God's authority... His majesty and His dominion extends to every realm, even to the immaterial. And so we need to understand all of life. That which we can see with our senses and that which we understand exists according to His purposes in the spirit realm, according to His authority. And that way we can set people aright right too when they awaken to a whole new idea of paganism. In our house, one uh, show we sometimes like to watch is called Alone. And the, pre- the premise is you take a few people like 10... And you place them in all these different areas and give them basic survival tools and then see who can stay the longest to get the prize, right? We were watching a few episodes last night, and the kids and I were talking about how virtually everybody in that show is a pagan. What do we mean by that? They worship and serve, according to Paul in Romans 1, the creature rather than the creator. A lady begins to make her shelter, and she says, the land told me what shelter to make. Oh, is that true, lady? (laughs) Apparently the land is uh, your revelation to giving you direction for how to survive out here, and then you know someone shoots a squirrel or whatever with their bow and arrow. Oh, thank you, squirrel. Thank you, squirrel. One guy went home early. Why? Because he couldn't handle the thought of taking a squirrel after squirrel after squirrel. He was ascribing so much dignity to this animal that he forgot that God has given us distinct identity and a cultural mandate that we are a different kind of creature and are to subdue even for food the the, uh, created realm, the animal kingdom of plants, and so forth. All these people were praying and ascribing some immaterial significance to creation. What were they doing? They're just pagans. They're just idol worshipers. They're thanking the land and praising the squirrel for, uh, for their survival. It's even less sophisticated than the ancient pagans which worshiped the sun. If the sun wasn't there, we'd all surely die. The sun must be God. Let's worship it. Can you think of anything higher or more dependent than all humans are? Let's focus our attention on this great source of life. We are not among these people. Instead, we are to call them to repentance. Jesus is Lord over the material and the immaterial. And how dare we ascribe attributes of God, glory, majesty, immortality, and so forth to the created realm. God is sovereign over all. God is sovereign over wolves in the church, world empires, covenant rebels, reprobate angels, the material, the immaterial, and even depraved societies. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities likewise indulge in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural devi- desires, serve as an example of undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. We relate to this as well. we a, so- a society has gained great confidence by the majority opinion of a world gone to seed, lost in our transgressions and sins, that we have permission, because it's popular, to transgress God's law, to redefine the terms of life and godliness and worldview according to the wickedness of our hearts. And God tells us right here that this is, that the judgment of His sovereign will hangs over such a depraved society. And Sodom and Gomorrah and the other events in Scripture, like the great flood, are there to remind us of this fact. The fire of Sodom and Gomorrah, the waters of judgment during the days of Noah, these were instruments of his reckoning that teach us a lesson. That execution, death, water, and fire are tools in the hand of our sovereign God and will be the fate of any and all who do not bow their hearts and their confession and their will to the only God. So when Jude says, all glory, majesty, dominion, and authority be to the only God, This is what he means to imply and to reinforce to the souls of the church. The only God, hear, O Israel, from the early days to now, from forever in the past and in the future, for all time now and forevermore. Remember that your sovereign is your Savior. He is Lord of all, King of kings, and to him we must bow. Second major point, to our Savior. Jude models, true worship inspired by the nature of God. Not just the nature of God as the only God, the exclusive and true God, but also to God as our Savior through Jesus Christ. 25. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority. Here, of course, we see the teaching of the Trinity that is presupposed or that undergirds the truths that Jude is saying. Jesus Christ is God. Jude has made this clear. It is also true that our only God and Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, uh, that there is a multiplicity in the Godhead. We've just finished saying that God is one. How could he be one and more than one? Well, in this sense, and this is the teaching of the Trinity, there is but one God in essence, but he is three in person. One God, three persons. The one true God of Scripture is three in person. God the... Kids, can you remind us? Wow, excellent. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jesus Christ is the second person of the Trinity. He is God the Son. How can God be our Savior? Because he is triune. Because God the Son was sent to this earth, took on flesh to die for our sins in the incarnation and redemption, and then rose again in victory over death and was ascended to rightfully return to his place of glory majesty dominion and authority because god is three in one he is he can be our savior jude's doxology extols the unique and triune nature of god you won't find an analog of this god in any other religious teaching people deny christianity on the basis of the trinity saying it's an absurd and contradictory thought but those who do so do not understand it. They do not understand it because their eyes are blind and their heart is hard. The teaching of the Trinity is all through the scriptures and it establishes for us an example or a revelation of the absolute uniqueness of God. And there's a reason why there is no analog in any other religion or any other concept, spiritually speaking, in man's history. Why? Because it's not man's idea, it is God himself. God is holy, He is above, He's transcendent and over. If we could conceive of Him in our own minds, then we would have a God in our image. But no, we are made in His image. And His image so far surpasses ours that His essence and who He is has to be revealed to us and exclusively to those whose eyes are open, whose hearts are repentant to see who He truly is, the Trinity, and who God is in His 3 partite person form, if you will, It's essential to salvation. In theology, we sometimes call this the economic trinity. What is the economic trinity? Well, it's the roles and relationships within the Godhead specific to creation and especially redemption. And Jude extols the nature of God in this context to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. It's because John 5 is true, where Jesus explains in 19 through 23, the following, if you want to turn there with me. Jesus, in the book of John, reveals so much about the nature of the Godhead. It's deep and it's devotional. It's so powerful, and it's a stumbling block for the unbeliever. But for those whose hearts have been changed by the Spirit to appreciate and love who God really is, then our spirits are lifted as we sing and shout our amen when we hear scriptures like this. John five nineteen. 19, Jesus, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He Himself is doing. And greater the works than these will He show Him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. Then it goes on, Jesus does, to make these distinctions in the Trinity, that is the roles and relationships of the Godhead as it pertains to our salvation. Jude had heard the teaching of Jesus Christ. He had heard the apostolic witness, if not heard it from the mouth of his Savior himself with his own ears. And thus he knew with his heart awakened to these truths that not only is our God one in essence, but he is three in person. He is the only God and Savior through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Who is Jude writing to? We've mentioned this before, it bears repeating. We go back to the first verse, Jude says, and second. A servant of Jesus Christ, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. You notice once again, the distinctions of the Trinity are evident from the first verse. God the Father, as the kids remind us, and God the Son are in view right there in verse one. Something else is in view, though, and this answers the question. Who can truly call the one true, exclusive, powerful, authoritative, majestic, glorious God, our Savior? Who can truly say, my Savior? That is an interesting question. And Jude answers, the only ones who can say, my Savior, or collectively can say, our Savior, our Lord, are the called, the beloved, and the kept for Jesus Christ. When Paul, or when Jude, excuse me, extols our Savior through Jesus Christ in this doxology, he is expecting his voice to be joined with the confession of all who can share his experience of redemption, of salvation, conversion, being born again, repenting of sins, and then being counted as a, in the covenant of the Lord, because the Lord changed Jude's heart and he turned from his wicked rebellion and confessed Christ as his Savior, he became, at that moment, by the Spirit's sovereign work in his soul, the called, the beloved, and the kept. Are you called? Are you beloved? Are you kept? And how do you know? Well, again, one way to judge is, does my heart resonate with these truths? Do I long to sing with all my soul the doxology that Jude has written? Because I realize I was a sinner, but God called me, even in spite of myself, to surrender, to turn everything I once loved and shape my identity around in my wickedness, I then rejected. And I cried out that my loving Savior who died for me by grace alone on Calvary, he was killed to save me, that he might show his love to me and keep me by the power of his blood and his spirit until that final day. These are the ones who can say, our Savior through Jesus Christ my Savior, through Jesus Christ. They have a basic understanding of who God is and who they are. They know they are sinners. They know God is holy. And they know God has made a way for them through his gospel. And in submitting and surrendering to this, confessing their sin and turning to Christ, they cry out with Jude, our Savior, my Savior, through Jesus Christ, be worship, be majesty, authority, dominion, and glory forever. And in this, they are, they show by this fruit, and by this confession, that they are among the elect. This verses 1 and 2, this letter greets, uh, is a greeting to the church. And thus, it illustrates to us who the audience of Jude's letter is. It is those who have personally experienced the salvation of Jesus Christ. They are the called ones. We don't know why God chose us except for His glory, but He has from among all the peoples of the earth, just like in the days of Abraham, to show forth his glory and be a light and testifying to the power of the gospel. We are the called, if you know him today. We are the called, and as such, we are beloved. God, before we loved him, showed his love towards us in offering his son as a sacrifice on the altar of what our sin deserves in order to save us. We are the called, we are the beloved, and we are the kept. As the Spirit keeps his church, By giving us the discernment to stand in the day when our faith is challenged. Evidence of His keeping power even through our obedience to contend for the faith when it is challenged. By these means, we see a growing conviction and a growing evidence and fruit that we can truly and justly call Jesus Christ our Savior. He is ours and He equips us. This second triad, if you will, that is group of three, appears in verse 2. And it's equally as beautiful. Uh, Jude prays for his hearers may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. So those who can say the Lord is our savior are those who are the called, beloved, and kept. And they also receive by his great outpouring of grace and means of grace in their lives, his mercy, his peace, and his love. They're the elect, they're the equipped who acknowledge that Jesus, their savior, both God and man died in their place. And thus they can sing the doxology with hearts resonating with Jude's experience and his proclamation of truth in his great closing to his letter. Final point this morning. Jude models true worship inspired by the nature of God. Thus saying, in fact, all glory, majesty, dominion, and authority be to the only God, secondly, to our Savior through Jesus Christ, and thirdly and finally this morning, to our Lord Jesus Christ. He is our Savior. He is our Lord. Jude says, again, 24... And 25, now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Jude has established that Jesus Christ as Lord is Christian orthodoxy, if you will. It is the true statement, the minimal confession you must believe in order to stay true to the faith. Remember, He has instructed us that there will be those who will come in every age, I, I believe, who will con- that we must contend against, because they will challenge something, as we said before, the exclusivity of Jesus. There will be false ideas, cults, false teachings, wolves who would say that in some way Jesus is not really master or Lord in the sense that Jude says He absolutely is. These are those we're called to stand against. He says, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend. That means to stand against something and stand for something else. It means to fight for the faith. The faith, he says, that was once for all delivered to the saints. I said exclusivity again. Once and for all, not new and improved, not modified over time, not progressively developed, not adjusted to accommodate our preferences. No, once and for all delivered. This is the faith that we are to contend for. And what does this faith say? That Jesus is not just our Savior, but He is our Lord, Savior and Lord. Jude writes, To rally opposition against those who in any sense would deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. That is Jesus who led Israel out of Egypt in cloud and and fire, which is, fancy word, theophonic presence. Theophany is a fancy word for a a demonstration or a revelation of God in perceptible form by our senses. God was present with his people as they left uh, Egypt. He was present and evidently present in two ways, or in one way that seemed different versus night and day. However, I'm not exactly sure the specifics. Suffice it to say in the scriptures, if you were to follow, moses you would be first and foremost following a theophonic or that is a god revealed in a tangible way cloud out of egypt this cloud of glory would later indwell the presence between the cherubim on the mercy seat when the atoning blood was shed at night this cloud appeared as a towering column as i imagine where you could not even see the top into the heavens Recall in, I believe it's Genesis 17 or thereabouts, the covenant ratification ceremony with our forefather Abraham. And as he prepares, according to God's word, those split sacrifices, who passes between them a torch and a smoking firepot A smoking fire pot and flaming torch, something like that. And what I imagine in that scene is similar if not uh, identical to this cloud and fire that led the people out of Exodus. These are ways that God revealed himself. So who was revealing himself in that cloud and fire? This was Yahweh. This is the I Am. He revealed himself in a unquenchable fire that needed no fuel to Moses at the burning bush. This is Yahweh. But according to Jude, this is Jesus who saved the people out of the land of Egypt. Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is God. Jesus is our master. He is our Lord. He is the one who led the people out of Egypt in cloud and fire. His presence was evident among them. This pattern, of, or, uh, by the way, there is a pattern that will identify every cult, that is, those who claim affinity to Christianity, but in effect are not Christians, but in reality are not Christians at all because they deny something fundamental to the faith. You will see a pattern across many, if not all of them. And this pattern across the cults is a denial, a limitation, perversion, or an innovation of the person and nature of Jesus Christ. This is helpful because we have these cults alive uh, with us today or here with us today. If you ever had a knock, knock, knock on the door and someone answers when you open, I'm with the Jehovah's Witnesses. The Jehovah's Witnesses are a cult. How do we know? because they deny the divinity of Jesus Christ. As I recall, they refer to Him as God's first and primary and perfect spirit son. He is a created being. How am I to witness to a Jehovah's witness? How am I to call them to repentance? I've gotten some help in this regard, and the scriptures, of course, applied, and here's a practical way to do it to prepare you for that next encounter. Turn first to John 8:24. What does Jesus say here about Himself? Well, let's just pause there for a moment. If you have your Bible, turn with me to John 8, 24. Let us hear what Jesus reveals of himself. This will be very briefly, but I just want to emphasize to you the authority and sufficiency of God's word against the enemies will sometimes seem hard to argue with. Well, I told you, Jesus says, that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am, he will die in your sins. So you might ask the Jehovah's Witness, and in my experience, they'll answer yes. Yes. So you claim that Jesus is such and such. I claim that Jesus is such and such. Now, we can't both be right. We can both be wrong, or one can be right or one can be wrong. But can you at least agree with me that if we're wrong on who Jesus is, that we are condemned and that we will die in our sins? So this is a big deal? And in my experience, they will agree, yes. Then you might turn to Psalm 102, 25 through 27. It's a psalm about Jehovah. They use that term Jehovah or Yahweh. Either one suffices; just a way of, different way of translating the Hebrew for God himself, the covenant-keeping, one true God that Jude extols. And when you read Psalm 102, you just ask them, who is this psalm talking about? And they'll say, well, Jehovah, of course. And then you turn to Hebrews chapter 2. I got this from James White, by the way. A great apologist on these matters. I'm sorry, turn to Hebrews chapter 1, 10 through 12. Do you know the author of Hebrews says this is Jesus? This is Yahweh, this is Jesus. I should say this is Jehovah, this is Jesus. And then they will be scratching their heads, they'll be looking at the testimony, even in their scriptures, however imprecisely translated they are, that Jesus himself, or at least his word, testifies to who he is. You can turn to Isaiah 6, and you can read together that vision of seeing beyond the veil of our ordinary human limitation into the realms of glory, and you'll see in there enthroned a person to whom the seraphim cry all day long and forever without end, holy, holy, holy. And you can ask the cultist, who is this? They will say again, in this case, Jehovah. And then you can say, did you know Jesus says this is him? And then you can turn in your scriptures to John 12, 41. According to Jesus, this, uh, Isaiah saw his glory and he clearly in context is referring to this very moment. Did you know occultist, one who denies the master, uh, the lordship of Jesus Christ, his sovereignly and exclusivity, that Jesus, he refers to this very passage in Isaiah chapter 6 to reveal that He is Jehovah. See, these are just a few examples of how the scriptures condemn and correct and call to repentance those who would deny what is basically Christian, that Jesus is fully God and fully man, that He is our Savior and He is our Lord, that He is the one who provided in His blood atonement sufficient covering for our sins, but the reason that that atonement had power And the reason that it is sufficient to wash it away is because he was perfect and sinless. As a second person of the Trinity, he was God himself. And this one, this holy and precious and perfect and sinless lamb was the only sufficient once for all sacrifice, not to mention high priest, prophet, and forever Lord, who is sufficient to save. This morning, as we now turn to communion, we think of these things. And it ought to give us a renewed appreciation for what is pictured in this great meal today. There is a great and glorious paradox, if you will, in in Christianity that remains a stumbling block to many. Yet the Bible teaches it clearly, and and we must assent to these truths in order to be saved, or the evidence of our salvation will demonstrate itself in an understanding that Jesus is not just Savior, but He is Lord. Furthermore, this, the Bible speaks of Jesus in many ways along these lines. Recall Jesus silencing his critics in Matthew 22:41 41 through 45, quoting there Psalm 110. How is it that David says to his Lord to sit at his right hand, or, or David says uh, to his Lord, or there's that relationship between God the Father and God the Son that is implied in Psalm 110 that Jesus refers to, to befuddle the Pharisees who refuse to see that God was a trinity, that he was one God in three persons, and that God the Son was prophesied of old, even among their heroes, David, who would come in due course and stoop low and take on flesh and die in our place. Today at the table of the Lord, we confess and behold the price of our redemption that could only be paid by one who is both fully God and fully man. Could only be paid by one when the words of Jude was our Savior, And our Lord, the only God and Jesus Christ. To Him be glory, majesty, dominion, and so forth. We recognize at the table of the Lord, we confess and behold the price of our redemption that could be paid by the one who is both God and man, Savior and sovereign, killed and resurrected, incarnate and ascended. As Isaiah proclaims, a suffering servant. As John beholds, a victorious king of kings. And furthermore, the lamb and the lion. Jesus Christ, who we worship today, has ascended and received his rightful place as the second person of the Trinity at the right hand of the majesty on high because he is Lord. But Jesus Christ, in taking on flesh, stooped low in the incarnation to bear the burden of our sins. He is our lamb, yet he is a lion who rules over all. This is Jesus. This is the revelation of the scriptures. And these are the inspirations that for Jude represented a wellspring from which to draw cause for worship. Jude worships a Lord who is the only God who is his Savior and his Lord. Furthermore, is the Lord and Savior of all true believers. He is the one who has established and secured the fullness of salvation and the only one which we'll explore in future messages who is worthy of all glory, majesty, dominion, and authority. And so we ascribe these things to him before all time and now and forever. Amen. Let us transition in prayer. Oh Lord, we thank you for the testimony of your scripture, which proclaims to us in authority and clarity, so long as you open our eyes, who Jesus is, his great sacrifice on our behalf. We thank you, Lord, that we have, in, for every believer in this room, unity of the spirit in the bond of peace, even with the authors of scripture, all the way back to Jude, and the apostles who wrote and recorded the amazing revelation of you, Lord, when you spoke and declared the terms of the kingdom of God, and when you died, satisfying the covenant terms that were necessary for our salvation and redemption. We thank you, Lord, for the sweet unity we have with believers of all ages. And we thank you for the means of your word to connect us to, that, uh, in, to their testimony and to that reality. And we also thank you for this meal as we sit down at a table today, recognizing that in these elements is represented the cost of our salvation, we realize, Lord, that we sit down at feast with all who are true believers, from the first days of those who took communion in faith in the early church to the future blessing, Lord, of total manifest presence or the total manifest blessings of salvation revealed in the fullness of the elect gathering at the marriage supper of the Lamb. What glorious table fellowship we enjoy Lord, celebrating that the cost of our redemption is satisfied in our Lamb in in our Lion, Jesus Christ, remind us of these things as we prepare our hearts to approach your table. Let us do so in reverence and in joy, recognizing that because of Jesus Christ on Calvary and his work, he is able to keep us from stumbling and to present us blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.